Well, we're in the process again of reading through the New Testament. It's a super important thing as you read through. You know, when people came to Jesus, they would oftentimes come to Jesus as with this idea in mind that he's this teacher and he's going to talk down to them and they would just come to him for this information like they were expecting or like what they were used to was sort of like what our kids think of with school sometimes or some of them think of a school like that not all but they just think of school sometimes like well this is what school is you just sit there and you're taught at all day and that's the way people treat you and Jesus oftentimes would just completely like reject that idea and what he would say instead when they come to him with the question he says well how, how does it read to you and that's what the Bible is there for. It's not to beat people over the head or to be taught at. Jesus didn't teach it, people. But it was the beginning of a wonderful conversation, and Jesus always wanted to start that conversation by listening to other people. And he would say, look, I, you know, tell me, how does it read to you? And I'll talk about how it reads to me. And it'll be, uh, you know, conversation is a part of friendship. That's how you become friends. I mean, I'm not saying it's the only thing you can become friends just by maybe playing basketball with each other every day or going to work every day or that. But even so, conversation is an important part. And the Bible is God's conversation to us. And he's not just teaching at us. He's, he wants to hear what we have to say about it. And he wants to talk about it. And this is why I think it's important for us as a church, because sometimes we can think of Sunday mornings as obviously this is a one-way conversation. I'm just talking to you but it really shouldn't be something where we're being taught at. And the reason why I kind of go, we're reading through it on our own, and also why we're looking at a passage and why sometimes it's maybe irritating. I sort of take some time to like explain how the passage sort of reads to me, but it's just in that vein, because that's what we're looking for, what Jesus was doing uh, of sort of, let's look and see what God has to say. And not just, you know, jump to conclusions, but let's talk about how it reads to us and why it reads to us that way. And so the passage we're looking at today, and the reason why I brought all that up is because when I first read through the passage at the beginning of the week, I just thought, I'm not going to preach on this passage. Even though we've been kind of focusing in on passages that I haven't ever preached on before, just personally, but then also just as a church, we've been focusing in on passages that speak about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and this hits both. But when I first read through it, it just brought up too many bad feelings that I had about earlier conversations when I first came into the church. I had My parents had brought me to church, and I had become a believer when I was a little kid. But when I became older, I just couldn't have anything to do with church and it wasn't that I disliked Jesus. I just disliked the church and just couldn't stand it and just couldn't go. And when God, uh, you know, uh, slowly brought me back to the church, I don't know if it was just unique to my time or unique to me or unique to the church, but whatever, there was all these different weird conversations that ensued and continued and not so much anymore, but there was a time when it was there. And when I look back on it, it, it wasn't pleasant. And this brings up a lot of things like that. And so I, you have to excuse me because as I read through it, different conversations that were sort of painful or not feeling good come to mind. And that may not be the case. And hopefully that isn't the case for you. But if I, you wonder why is he bringing this up, it's because of that type thing. So you have to have a little bit of grace with me.
Uh, whenever we ask the question, how, how does this read to you? It's always going to involve some pain that we've had in life, some, some uh, interaction that we had, that's always gonna be pulled into it. And it can't be avoided. But through all that, it's important for us to really sort of press through and say, well, what is it that God's saying? I mean, I hear what everyone else has to say, but, but what is it that, that Jesus is saying to me here? And that's what I, I, I hope we're going to do. I'm going to just sort of go through this slowly, maybe just do it a little bit different. I mean, we do this usually in, in some fashion, but maybe more um, directly. I, I'm just going to go through this real slow and just talk through some different points of why I think why it reads this way to me. And you can agree or disagree. It's perfectly fine to disagree. It's no one needs to accept anything. It's just how does it read to you? I'm going to sort of explain why it reads this way to me. And here's where the passage starts off. It says, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, that first phrase, when the apostles in Jerusalem, to me, the way it reads to me is the apostles that are in Jerusalem were, it's a reference to the 12 apostles. Judas killed himself, but then we saw earlier in Acts, they elected a new apostle. So there's the apostles that walked with Jesus, the apostles that it says the Holy Spirit cause to remembrance the things that Jesus said, the things that Jesus wrote, the apostles that basically how we have the New Testament. So the apostles, and the unique thing about them was that they walked and talked. They were witnesses, direct witnesses of Jesus that we read about right now and that we're reading through in the New Testament. So when I see when the apostles in Jerusalem to me, those are the people that it's referring to. It's not just referring to Peter. The story is about ready to talk about Peter. Uh, it says that, that when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John. So yes, Peter and John were there, and the story is about Peter and John. But even so, it's not just Peter. <laughs> it's Peter and John, and Peter and John are being sent from the larger group. So the authority that's going out here is not the authority of a person or Peter and John. It's the authority of the group of the apostles. And the connection that we have to that group of the apostles is the word of God that we have through them. Now, what, why is that important to me? Because I've had lots of I think when I first came back into the church, I remember I had several people talk to me and it's like, well, the reason why you left the church is because it was full of corruption. And the reason why it was full of corruption is because it wasn't connected to any kind of apostolic succession. And I was like, what is that? I don't have any idea. I mean, I've read through the Bible now, you know, a few times just on my own because I just wanted to know what it had to say. I haven't been going to church, so I don't know like the church lingo and stuff like that, but I have no idea what that is. Well, what they were saying is that they're the authority rests in Peter. And when they read these stories, they see, see the authority rests in Peter, but it's not resting in Peter. And it's not an authority that's passed down person to person. To person. That's not what this story is about to me when I read through it. It's about whatever authority we see coming from the group of the apostles in Jerusalem, 
that were those disciples, those 12 or 11, and then adding in the other, that followed Jesus. And what it is that they have to offer us, and what it is that they offered us, is now we have these stories that are brought back to remembrance by the Holy Spirit, that at first, at this time in this story, was just being told, but it was in the process of being written down, so that what we have now it is the New Testament. So it says, uh, it says, they heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God. Uh, Samaria is a region. And so whatever problem you see in this passage, it's not a problem directed at an individual. Oftentimes we see the problem as this. People didn't receive the Holy Spirit, and, and so there's a reason why this person doesn't receive the Holy I'm praying for them. Maybe they're not getting healed. Why are they not receiving that? Why is this person not receiving? This isn't about a person. It's about a problem with an entire region or something that's happening in an entire region. And, and what's the only thing that we really know about this region? Uh, we can look into different historical things, but the things that Jesus pulls out when he talks to the woman at the well in Samaria, he says, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know. In other words, what he's saying is, is they had an inherent problem in that area where they were willing to worship God, they wanted to worship God, but they didn't want to adhere to the written word of God. So they felt like they could follow God and worship God in that region, in general, had a tendency to feel as though they could follow God, but they didn't necessarily need to adhere to the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And so that's why there was such a uh, division there. And so whatever the problem is, it's a regional thing, and whatever it might be attached to, it has the only info that we have about that, Samaria, is that that region tended to have a problem where they felt like they could follow God without really adhering to the authority that's there in God's written word. And so that's why it says they, uh, they found out that they received the word of God, but what they received in terms of the word of God was Philip coming in and telling them things, speaking to them, and then gauging that, and him talking about the Old Testament and stuff. And they received the message of that, the Word of God, the message. And what I see in the story now is God saying, you have to receive what's coming from the, the Word that's coming from the apostles in Jerusalem, the Twelve, whom I'm writing the New Testament, and sort of addressing what might be the issue of a difficulty that they have where they feel like they can follow God without really seeing the necessity to adhere to or just follow, or it wasn't a sole authority, the Bible to them, the written word. It says uh, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They simply had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes people put uh, a huge emphasis that you're not going to get the Holy Spirit, or you're not going to get a gift of the Holy Spirit, that there's something about a method of laying on of hands, and, and a method or a, a prayer that comes from someone, 
or someone in, in a, a apostolic with an apostolic gifting. Okay. The, the problem is, is that if you, whatever it is you say, the method was, Philip would have done that method. What it would, if it was just a prayer, Philip would have prayed for him. And in terms of what anyone today views as an apostolic, this person has a apostolic mantle on them or something, what, whatever it is that's causing someone to say that, you would look at Philip and say, well, he has that tenfold than what this person has. It can't be those things. It's tied to something specific coming from the 12 apostles that has to do with the Word of God. It has to do with the Holy Spirit coming and being the authority over that process. And it has to do with that, the Word of God, in, in my reading through it. And, and then it says, why is that important? It says, when Simon uh, saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of hands of, again, the apostles, not the laying on of hands of, I mean, Peter and John were apostles, but what he saw was the apostles, which we saw at the beginning, defined as those 12 that are in Jerusalem. And some people see there, when it says Simon saw, that here's the problem that people have in the passage, it is everyone agrees, or the bulk of, of those that believe in Jesus, believe that the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, comes on us solely based on our faith, on our belief in Jesus. When we believe in Jesus, then the Holy Spirit comes on us. But in this passage, it seems like there's some sort of disconnect here because people did believe. And some people say, well, they didn't believe uh, that the receiving of the Word of God doesn't necessarily mean that they believed. Well, Luke always uses it in that sense. And, and he says that they, were they had been baptized and that no one was going to baptize anybody in the name of the Lord Jesus unless they had believed. And so it's real believers. So you can't avoid the problem by watering that down. It's real believers. And then people say, well, it has to do with what Simon saw. And so it has to do with a manifestation, a physical manifestation of the Spirit that they believed. And we know that when you believe, you have the Holy Spirit. And so it must just be talking about that they didn't have the Holy Spirit in the sense of what people call ecstatic gifts. And I don't know why they use that word, but, but what they're referring to is the gifts of like speaking in tongues and prophecy that the problem is solved because they did have the Holy Spirit, and what they received by the laying on of hands and by praying was just certain gifts, specific gifts of speaking in tongues. And The problem is the passage doesn't say that. That's something we're construing based on the word saw. But the description that Simon gives in terms of what he saw is this. He says, give me this ability, or give me... This authority is the word he uses, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. What he keys in on, what he sees, and then what he's talking about, again, is the authority. That he sees that the Holy Spirit is being given, everyone sees that, and it's being given based on belief in Jesus. But there is attached to it that it rests under an authority 
and he wants that authority for himself, but that authority doesn't rest in him. It rests in the 12 apostles, of which it rests in Scripture. That's our connection to it. And so what you see, I don't think, is a problematic thing. It's just saying that the Holy Spirit is about receiving God's Word, and as we receive God's Word, that's why it says they had received the Word of God. So as we receive the Word of God, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about us receiving the Word of God, and, and receiving it means receiving it as the authority in our life. Now, there's no problem with that. Everyone would agree with that. But why is that important? The reason why it's important is because we want, it's in our nature, just as with Simon, it's not something unique to Simon, it's unique to all of us, that we want to grab that authority for ourselves. And we just see the Bible as a tool that we use to sort of beat people over the heads because we're the gatekeepers and we're the authority. But we're not. God's not giving that to us. It resides in Scripture alone, in His Word alone. In other words, everything that God is doing with the Spirit, it's not a different word. It's not a different thing that's being said. It's not another way that we can be led in a direction. It all works under the authority that has always been there, which is the Word of God. It comes to us through belief in the Word of God, and it's maintained as we receive the Word of God. And in receiving it, we're receiving it as an authority over us. Now, why is that important for us to have that? Uh, Peter starts to explain. He says, may your money, that's the same word that uh, is used, he offered them money. It's the exact same word. Uh, oh, sorry. The, actually, it says when it says, may your money perish with you because you thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. The second word money is the word that he used before. The first word money is actually a different word. Uh, it, it is money, but, but what the, the word means is, here's he offers money, and then Peter ends by saying you've offered money. But that word in the middle, it's a different word than those two. And, and what that word means, it, it's like the habit or custom or what we're used to the way in which we're used to obtaining things. And in the context of this passage, he's trying to obtain things by offering money. And so it's simple to translate it money. But what he's saying is he offered money and Peter says, look, the way in which you're accustomed to, to obtaining things, which in this case is money, you know, that that should perish with you, with your money. In other words, it's just a temporal thing. So, so he's, he is talking about money, but he's just talking about the way in which we think we can obtain things. And what he's getting at there is that it's actually a huge problem. And it always has been in the church. And we just keep going back to it. And it's this idea that we think, we will say, this is a gift from God, and the things that the Holy Spirit is a gift from God, and the work that the Holy Spirit is a gift of God. But we have this way of making people jump through hoops and paying us money to get to it. 
And what do I mean by that? I think, you know, I, I, a while back I had told this story about Antra and I uh, going to Egypt and we went to this seminary and uh, there it's like at the time it was the only seminary in North America. And I'm going to repeat it to you because when I, I realized this morning that when I had talked about it before, I had left some important details out. So I'm going to tell you the story again and then tell you what I left out and why I left it out. We went to this seminary and they said, hey, you know, mo most of the churches in Egypt, as I said, don't have a pastor. And I remember asking them, well, why is that? You know, they don't have anybody that serves. Well, they have people that kind of work in that capacity, but they're not really a pastor. Well, why aren't they a pastor? Well, because they're not ordained. Well, why aren't they ordained? Because they don't have a seminary degree. Well, what do they need to do to get a seminary degree? They have to come here and pay you money for three years and get it. And I remember them saying, no, that's not it. Uh, we actually have them come for four years. It's like, well, your only disagreement with my statement is, is, Actually, we have four years instead of three years. But, and so I left us with the idea of like, why do we think that being a pastor, which is a gift that the Holy Spirit gives, it, he gives it to, to us, that, that we have to get that gift by giving this institution money, and then they give us a piece of paper, and then we will recognize them as having that gift. Well, why do we have all that in there? But what... And Paul says, look, you need to repent from this. But what I didn't bring up is, what, what is it? I left it as though they needed to repent from that. And they didn't need to repent from that because all they were doing was just following us. Andrew and I had like joined this seminary or there as a part of a class of this seminary coming in. Where did they learn or think of that they should do this? Such They didn't think of it on their own. It's not a part of Egyptian culture. They thought of it because of the Western ideas of seminary, of which we were a part of. And if anyone needs to repent, Andrew and I needed to repent for just being a part of that whole process. And that's what he's getting at here is that, and taking it, why he's taking it so seriously, because the idea of, I'm just going to go out and buy some stuff, or the idea of that, that, you know, this is something of value that God is doing, and you should pay me for it. That's a dangerous road to go down. You know, if my sermons were for sale online, what am I? I mean, it's like I'm saying you got to pay me for it. If our songs are available, what you got to pay me for it. There, there's a problem. And it's not just the money. It's the process by which that we think that there's hoops that we can put up, things that we can demand from people, and, and that we're this gatekeeper. I think that was, sorry guys. Yeah, we're just gonna wait for Dennis to come back on. Um, looks like he's coming back on now. You good, Dennis? Your, your, your mute's on, you're on mute. Oh, I'm back now. Didn't even have to revert back to my phone. All right, let me continue. I'll make it faster now. Maybe that was a good indication to make things faster. Uh, let's look back at what, uh, Peter is saying why he's reprimanding Simon. He says, may your 
this approach that you're making, the way that you're used to doing this, may it perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. And he says, you have no part. And when he says you have, he's not just talking about money has no part. He's talking about this way of thinking that he brings up, this, this, this way that we are in the habit of obtaining things. You know, we just think, well, here's how I've obtained a job. I go to school, I get this, I do that. And so we apply it to the things of God. We think I need to go to school. I need to get training from this person. I need to pay for a seminar. I need to pay for a book or I need to do this. And then I'll have these gifts. He says, it doesn't work like that. There's no part of that in that. And I know, you know, I've participated in all these things like this about the and you keep hoping that there's just got to be some part for that in there. There's no part, he says. And there's no share in this ministry. And he says, because your heart is not straight before God. In other words, look, when we start thinking this way, the way that we work out our authority and the way that we go down this road, it's really a heartless endeavor. You know, we, we have uh, elections coming up. I mean, elections are fine. There's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. And other, but like what's going on in people's minds? What's going on in everybody's mind is that we're going to get this person or this person or this law or that law, and then everyone will need to conform to that. I don't know that anyone's really talking about like, well, how's what's going on in the heart of someone that I disagree with? How am I going to connect with someone that I disagree with? No one's thinking about it in a personal heart-to-heart level. And that's the problem with the way we work out authority. We work it out in a heartless way. But God's not working it out in a heartless way. You know, when you think about what's being bought or sold, I mean, every time I pick up my phone, I'm being bought or sold, bought and sold to people. Every time I, you know, keeps track of my location, all that information is just being bought and sold in a heartless way. I mean, it just is the way we we do things. I mean, every time I, you know, walk out of my house, I'm being bought and sold. And we think, well, I'm not being bought or sold. I do what I want to do. And, you know, the advertisement, that time, it doesn't have any effect on me. I don't know about that. What God is doing, what's different, is that God is not looking at things in a heartless way. He wants to know what we have to think. He wants to know what our opinions are. He cares about us. And he's not just trying to ram something down our throat. What he did was he came down and became one of us. He came to us. He became a human being and walked with us and talked with us face to face. And he redeemed us. And what that word redeemed means, he bought us back from this process where we're just sort of heartlessly buying and selling people and heartlessly trying to obtain what we want by forcing people to to comply to what we think is right. And that's the way it works when we're the authority. But that's not the way it works with God. With God, he's giving even his son to us. He's working out his authority by giving freely to us, by forgiving to us, by, by forgiving us all the time. Why is he working out his authority in that way? He could just demand from us compliance. He could just show up and every knee would bow. Why is he going through this time where he's pulling back? 
Why? Because he cares about our heart. He wants us to come to love him. And him forcing himself on us isn't going to bring that about. And so he's just showering these gifts. And most of the gifts we just take and then use in a heartless way. And we don't even see it as being from God. But God just keeps on giving. Because God's authority is about connecting with our heart. And he says, what brings our heart straight with God isn't grabbing a hold of this or that. It isn't doing the right thing because we're never going to do this. Even Peter, he's sitting here telling this guy that he's been doing something wrong. We're going to read about in a few chapters here, if you haven't already gone through Acts, where Peter needs to be rebuked by, by Paul. We're all, we're all, here's the only way that we can get our heart right with God and with anyone else. And this is what Peter says. He says, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. And he's not making it, it sounds like he's saying it, the forgiveness is conditional. He's not saying that it's good. What he's saying is, is that if you think about this, this is your only hope. Our only hope is not that we're going to get it right. The only hope that we have, given who we are and what is true about us in this world, our only hope even after we believe is repentance. That's what brings us straight with God. And we can grab a hold of that hope and we can stay in that hope. And that's what the Word of God does for us. The Word of God brings us into a belief with God's salvation. It, it keeps the authority of God on him and not giving it out to other people. And that leads us to the only hope that we have where our heart will be straight with God, where we'll be able to do anything that brings us in line with this heart relationship that God desires from us. And that's the only thing we have to offer really comes down to repentance. <laughs> You know, I can, and even if it's just a half-hearted or whatever, just some sort of like move in that direction is what God's saying. That'll bring us so that our hearts will be straight uh, between each other. And then he says, for I see that you were full of bitterness. And my version says captive to sin. A lot of you are saying bound. That the word is just, uh, and sin, the, the word is injustice. And he's saying that this is this way of thinking, of just purchasing things in a heartless way, this way of thinking that we're the authorities and, and that we can obtain this in this way, and, and then we can go about and, and make it. He's saying that is what leads to all the bitterness that we see around us, and that is what binds us to injustice. That's what connects us to things that are unjust. And that's what I was bringing up with Andrew and I, is that, you know, the idea that we're going to, we need to pay this group money and then go here and we have to pay for this class. And then the Holy Spirit, that it has some sort of part in the Holy Spirit. All it did was just contribute to and bind us to the injustice that was there in Egypt when we were there, uh, of people not being recognized for the gift of pastoring and people being forced to like, just like the upper 1% could come through and Injustice. The problem with injustice is not all those people. <laughs> the problem is, is us and the way we think about things. And it's not going to be solved by simply a transition of 
power in human terms. It's not like moving from this person to this person is going to effectively change anything. It's still going to be full of bitterness and injustice. The one thing that does change things is if we, if that authority for us, and what, what I mean by authority, the authority by which, you know, what is it that we're looking for to be authoritative in our life? What, what is it that we're looking for as our hope for being saved? What, what is it that we're looking for in our hope to get out of all this bitterness that we just find ourselves wrapped in? What, what is it that we are counting on as our hope to, to just sort of pull us away from being attached to injustice? The only hope is God. And you don't have to believe that. That's perfectly fine not to believe that. If you believe your hope is this person or that person or this group or that group, that's fine. Go with it. But at some point in our lives, coming to Jesus means not just coming to Jesus as a way of saving us, that I might get some sort of help from Jesus, but I can still hold on to all this other stuff. Coming to Jesus involves us repentance. And what that means is saying, I don't, I've been putting my hope in all these other things, and I just don't see it actually doing anything. I see it as just sort of, I, I keep putting my hope in this or this or that person, and it just keeps coming back around to bitterness and injustice. At some point, we have to ask ourselves, maybe there is no part. You know, maybe all the things that we've been doing, there is no part or portion. That's what Peter's saying. We keep hoping that there will be. There's not. It's just in God. The only hope that we have, the only true authority, the only hope that we have for authority that isn't just completely corrupt is if what we read in the Bible is true. If it is true that God is the one who's in charge, and if God is acting out his authority in a way that's completely different from the way we acted out, not by forcing us comply, but by working on our heart, by working on our heart, by just showering us with love. And yes, there's going to be some things like with Peter where he's going to call us on it and we're going to sort of pull back and wonder what's, that's fine. But there's no denying he's doing it in a loving way. There's no denying if you read through and if we accept, what we're accepting is, is that God came down and died for us. What we accept is that everything that God is doing on our behalf. And that's where this repentance leads Simon. At least it looks to me that way. Some of the translations say in sort of a context of, well, pray to the Lord yourself. As though it's like, you pray instead of me, like he's pushing back. That could be the case. But the word that he's actually that we should focus on is nowhere does it say pray instead of me. What it says is pray on behalf of me. And that's what we need to grab a hold of is start thinking through what is being done. What is God doing on behalf of us? And that's what the word of God is pulling out is we're what we need to see isn't the authority of person. That's a mistaken thing that leads to bitterness and injustice. What we need to see is the authority of God. Now, when we see the authority, well, what authority is that? It seems strange to us because God's acting in a different way. Here's God's authority in 
giving his son for us and dying for us and constantly giving to us and constantly always forgiving us. All the things that God is doing on our behalf. He's doing it on our behalf because he cares about our heart. He cares about us. He cares about who we are. And he's not just stomping us down. He's trying to just talk with us, trying to just communicate with us. And he's just pouring his love out because he's, his desire isn't just for us to comply. His desire isn't about that, us complying. His desire is for us to have a love that grows in our heart. His, his desire is to have a situation where we'll be in all of eternity. He will be loving us and we will be loving him. And our brothers and sisters will be loving us and we will be loving them. That's God's plan. And God's going about it in a way that's different than the way we're going about it. But it's worthwhile to think about. And it's worthwhile to think, maybe this is the only way. Maybe there is no part of this other way. The buying and selling of things, obtaining things with cash, obtaining things through power. a heartless way of going about it. Maybe there is no real hope in that. And what God's challenging us to see and provoking us through the Bible as we read through it is read through it for yourself. How how do you see it reading? But what he's hoping that we'll see is the love that he has for us and all that he is doing on our behalf because he cares about us and he cares about us. He cares about us loving him. He's not demanding it. He wants it to come from freedom. And that's what coming to Jesus is about, coming to slowly understand that. And it it grows on us. And the Bible is an important part of that. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we just thank you for this passage. Uh, Please let it sink in for us what it is that you're saying Please hear us as we talk to you about it, as we read through the the New Testament and we're talking to you. And thank you for the way that you're so gentle for us. And I pray that this week you just really highlight for us all that you are doing on our behalf. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.